throwing off this sort of yoke of colonization that encourages us as people and as a community to see each other as competitors for scarce resources and to really operate from a perspective of plenty. And we have plenty. And the more that we can collaborate, the more we can work together, the better we can serve our communities. Welcome to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. I'm your host, Cole Primo. And I'm your other host, Leah Lamb. Native Lights is a place for Native folks to talk about our gifts and how we share them with our communities. It has a Minnesota focus, and, well, we talk about a lot of things here, but with a wide range of perspectives, all while sticking to the core conversation about that purpose, the purpose in our lives, the purpose in our guests' lives, and Cole, you and I, we, t- we, we, we contribute in that too, t- talking about the purpose in mm-hmm. our lives. <laughs> How's it going, Cole? Still trying to figure out the purpose, you know, but that's part of the purpose. <laughs> if <you're... laughs> but yeah, doing well. Was able to see Grandma for the first time. Oh. You know, we're both fully vaxxed, and so it was dropped off some Mother's Day things. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since I've seen her, so mm-hmm. uh, it's been a long time since I've seen a lot of people. Um, so it's just good to mm-hmm. something's turning a corner, but you know, I still want to be cautious. How are you doing? I'm fine. We put our patio furniture on our deck this last weekend, which I'm sure jinxed everything because it's cold now. So <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. Just sort of kind of plant in the garden, doing a little cautious optimism with the change of seasons but yeah I'm, I'm jealous I should go down and see grandma because yeah it's been a while for me too yeah she's she's also very cautious you know yeah I was curious in your community do you have a place that you like to go to reflect or I don't know, a place of calming uh, you're talking about a garden maybe it's just your garden but I was just curious <laughs> you know my garden's not that calming because I'm not like <laughs> I wouldn't call myself a green thumb or highly knowledgeable, so it's kind of stressful. You know what I do a lot is uh, I try to get on the trails up here, which is, you know, there are plenty of trails. And one of them mm-hmm. that I go to at least a couple times a week is the Masabi Trail. It starts locally here in Grand Rapids slash La Prairie, and it stretches out to Ely. I mean, there are some unfinished areas, stretches of the trail but it goes from here to Ely which would be awesome to do one day but usually I just hit the trail and there's this one place along the trail that is just so noisy with life like frogs and ducks and whatever it's just like you can't see them Mm -hmm. it's kind of kind of (laughs) eerie because it's it's one of those places that's super noisy but also very still and I find that just really fun and yeah I feel like I'm in among like a big party, (laughs) a nature party. (laughs) How about you, Cole? Do you find any places of calm in Minneapolis? It's kind of tough to uh, with the construction right now, at least by my house. But um, I'm actually really excited because it's getting to that season of canoeing and stuff like that. We always go, you know, around the Cedar Lake near me Mm -hmm. um, or Lake of the Isles. Do you ever get out on Bidet Makaska? 
Uh, yeah, every now and then it's okay. just it's just a big you know a big lake and it's usually a lot more windy. Oh yeah, so, okay. <laughs> uh, canoeing that lake is a little bit more hectic and there's all these people mm. paddleboarding around and you gotta you do some strategic paddle movements to get out of their way. That's so strange. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, it's a little more calm and stuff like that in Cedar Lake and okay. stuff like that. So cool. I guess the reason why I kind of asked that, because, you know, a lot of what we talk about is communities um, and the guest that we'll be speaking with does a lot with, you know, community development and mm. and he kind of is has got his hand in local government and a lot of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So that is why I'm excited for today's guest. Yeah, me too. That person is White Earth Ojibwe Nation citizen Robert Lilligren. Robert Lilligren served for 12 years as a vice president of the Minneapolis City Council. He is currently the president and CEO of the Native American Community Development Institute. Uh, he serves on a, uh, plenty of boards for several nonprofit organizations. He's a house developer and a year-round bike commuter. Um, and he lives in South Minneapolis with his husband, Steve. <laughs> Hey, Bouchou, Robert. Bouchou. Bouchou, how's it going? <laughs> great, great. Good. Good. Can you uh, just start by, you know, introducing yourself and maybe a brief brief background? Sure. Bouchou, Nindene Ganadak, Bawa Babi Genekagan, Dunjaba, Ojoishko Ganeji, Nindodam, Ogemamish Kwedezi, Nindjinjakaz. I'm Robert Lilligren. I am a citizen of the White Earth Ojibwe Nation, and I am the president and CEO of the Native American Community Development Institute, or NACDI, uh, down on East Franklin Avenue in South Minneapolis. And NACDI is an asset-based community development intermediary uh, that uh, promotes the concept of the American Indian Cultural Corridor here in South Minneapolis, an economic engine and destination that would be Native-led, Native-owned, and benefit Native people. I live in South Minneapolis, just a few blocks from where my grandmother lived out her life and my dad grew up. I'm a third-generation Minneapolis urban Indian. I am a former Minneapolis City Council member. I served on the Minneapolis City Council for 12 years. Uh, I was the first tribal citizen ever elected to that body or elected to any office within the city of Minneapolis. Uh, Since then, there have been, what, six more, I believe. So I just like to mark that progress. I currently serve in our regional government here in the Twin Cities. It's called the Metropolitan Council, where I represent South Minneapolis, downtown, North Minneapolis, and Robbinsdale. And I was appointed to that position by the governor. And let's see, one of my 17 titles, I am the <laughs> vice chair of the Metropolitan Urban Indian Directors, or MUID, MUD, as we say. MUD is a 50-year strong leadership forum of some three dozen organizations here in the Twin Cities. Is that enough? <laughs> that is, that's a mighty, that's a mighty background. I like it. <laughs> how are you and your family doing during the pandemic? You know, how are you feeling at this moment, you know, in time? Yeah, this pandemic has been kind of a trip, huh? It's been the strangest year of my life. Uh, lost my mother through the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was already pretty frail, and then COVID got into yeah. her facility, and she just didn't have strength. So she passed right around Christmas. Just this last Saturday, May 8th, was her birthday. And so uh, we actually had a beautiful, beautiful 
a graveside service and ceremony, and then lunch in a park with my some of my family that I haven't seen for over a year. Uh, so the uh, now trying to know I'm in the office today, uh, which is thrilling. I was in the office every day last week as well, being fully vaccinated and trying to figure out how we can start doing some in-person working and. And then through this last year, with the murder of George Floyd and the civil unrest that followed that, that was right here, right here where I live, where I work. And so there's just been some interesting response uh, to that, which really has shown some incredible strength in the Native community down here in protecting our people, protecting our assets, and protecting our non-Native neighbors and their assets too. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today, we're hearing from Robert Lilligren, Director and CEO of the Native American Community Development Institute and is a Metropolitan Council member who works to advance equity in Native communities in the metro area. Um, what What's big on your mind right now? Um, you, you mentioned all these different hats you wear. Are there any big big topics that you're really trying to tackle? Oh, man, that is a big question. Yeah. So uh, the organization I work for is an asset-based community development agency or organization. I am an asset-based kind of operator, something of an optimist. And so as we've been coming through this pandemic and these difficult times and the, uh, the awareness that has come following the civil unrest and George Floyd's murder, it's to look for the opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and they are there. And locally, there's just been a lot more awareness of sort of environmental, economic, social injustice and a stronger sense to want to do something about it. And so from a community standpoint, that means one thing. From a public sector standpoint, that means, you know, another thing, resources will be coming into the community as we look at the repair and recovery acts at the federal level, considerable funds are going to be coming right into our community here. And so, so really working as a community to be collaborative, to be collective, to amplify our impact by, by really sort of throwing off this sort of yoke of colonization that encourages us as people and as a community to see each other as competitors for scarce resources and to really operate from a perspective of plenty. And we have plenty. And the more that we can collaborate, the more we can work together, the better we can serve our communities. I love that. We are like totally on board with that right. um, on Native Lights. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, you know, we see all these, oh, ugh, you know, all these problems that you just listed off, but also the opportunities that are there. Um, and you mentioned ways that we can kind of um, get around or, like, just not even acknowledge that, like, colonist mentality of, you know, the usual way of doing things. Uh, and you mentioned some really great ways, collaborative instead of competitive and um, asset-based and in these great ways. Is there an example that you'd like to share of, you know, a foundationally indigenous or community-based uh, method of building community or building something that you're involved in? 
Yeah, thanks, Leah. I think I'm going to use two examples that are actually separated by a few years that I think really show some satisfactory progress in trying to indigenize the way that we work together as uh, organizations, native organizations here in the Twin Cities. And we were, we've been trying to be very deliberate about it at the leadership level. And uh, a few years back, when I was interim CEO at Little Earth of United Tribes here in South Minneapolis, there was an opportunity to uh, apply for some significant funds or significant for us from the city of Minneapolis and from the state of Minnesota at the same time. And normally what would happen is all of the eligible organizations would all apply. You know, we'd see our friends at any kind of grant meetings and things, and we'd be competing with each other. And so this was maybe five, six years ago. We decided to do it, try to do it a little different. And so those who would most likely apply for these funds all met together at the American Indian OIC here on the Cultural Corridor. So there may be half a dozen executive directors and then our development folks sitting around this table. We met maybe three or four times in a, in a short period to talk about how we could collaborate on applications that would best support the community, bring more resources in. And then at the end of the final meeting, it was time to make a decision, you know, and, uh, and I'll never ever forget this. We were sitting around this table. It was really quiet. It reminded me of watching a movie where people are playing high stakes poker. You know, it's like dead quiet. We're all looking around the room into each other's eyes, waiting for somebody to, to say something or to make a move. If there'd have been a clock in the room, you'd have heard it ticking, you know, and finally someone around the table said, okay, well, I'll do this part. And someone else, and you know, more more eyes looking around the room, silence. And someone else said, "Well, we'll take up this piece, and we'll be supportive, but not a lead agency." You know, a little bit more of a pause. And another executive director said, "Okay, well, we'll sit out this round, so we're not competing with you. But if there's another round of this kind of funding, we want to be a lead on it." And so we kind of all settled what everyone was going to do. We submitted these two applications that ended up bringing something like a half a million dollars into our community. We prevailed. Our strategy was we would have such good applications that if we were denied, we would have a nice big stick to beat the city or to beat the state with for not funding us. And so, so that was just tremendously successful. And so now flash forward six years or, and um, as we're seeing these resources come down, especially from the federal level, mm -hmm. but from the state as well, mm -hmm. uh, we were just all called up uh, to a retreat and uh, a very similar group sat around a fire and shared. It was, it was really emotional, really beautiful, ceremonial, really, and just started to sort of uh, build relationship uh, outside of the funding. We got to the funding conversation, but how can we, you know, really share with each other, but then also start creating a list of priorities that will best serve the whole community. And this was just last week. It was so powerful and so beautiful. And so, so it was, and it was very indigenous. And pipe carriers brought their pipes. There was a pipe ceremony. There was a fire all day. There were songs. There were prayers. And, and it just really felt good. That's that's so wonderful because, you know, you have these big funders and sometimes it can feel like and be like people or organizations pitted against each other. But that just mm -hmm. sounds so wonderful to like go in and collaborate. And I loved yeah. it when you were talking about sitting around the table and there right. was silence. 
right. and consideration and contemplation about what the organizations were going to do, like what parts the organizations wanted to participate in. Because mm-hmm. I just don't feel like that's that's necessarily the case in other situations. So that that ability, that openness to have silence and contemplation without somebody just like jumping in and like calling it first or something like that. Colin Dibbs. Right. <laughs> right. And we've been so deliberate, I will tell you that, Leah, here, you know, just to to do what you're saying and to not always be the first one jumping in and and it's just, you know, I've been around a while. And so for me, it's really, really satisfying, affirming to see us actually being able to do it. You're listening to Native Lights, where Indigenous voices shine. Native Lights is produced by Minnesota Native News and Ampers with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Today, we're hearing from Robert Lilligren, director and CEO of the Native American Community Development Institute and a Metropolitan Council member who uh, works to advance equity in Native communities in the metro area. Um, So, uh, Robert, I see that you have a a history with uh, affordable housing. Could you tell me about, uh, you know, just your your background with housing and what got you into that? Yeah, thanks. So uh, I was just telling someone earlier today as well that, you know, I bought my first home pretty young. I was 22 years old and uh, here in Phillips in South Minneapolis. And... The stability of owning my home, the stability that that created in my life, and the sort of uh, credibility that it brought me in the broader community was really important, fundamental, sort of foundational to to what I've done since I was 22 years old. And so I started as a homeowner fairly young. Uh, I became a landlord fairly young when during a mortgage foreclosure crisis of the 1980s and 90s, my almost half of my block became vacant and boarded here in Phillips. And so I was able to purchase homes within my reach of a working, the resources of a working person, you know, and uh, renovate, uh, rent, and then uh, refinance to then go on to the next building. And so, so uh, that was very hands-on housing experience. I moved mm-hmm. a couple of buildings that were going to be demolished. Oh. And so I just learned a lot very young. And when I um, got elected to the city council here in Minneapolis in 2001, then I worked on the community development committee for my whole 12 years in city hall. I was the secretary of our uh, Minneapolis uh, community development uh, agency, so real direct in in funding, uh, housing and affordable housing, and setting policies to support the development of of more housing. And so, so that was some complementary experience to my own housing development activities. And uh, so here in the community, then I went and worked at Little Earth of United Tribes, which is a project-based HUD uh, Section Eight housing community that is allowed to grant native preference here in the urban courts, the sole example of one in the entire country. So I got sort of hands-on experience at the executive level of that scale of housing and the relationship between um, the housing and the federal agency, HUD. Uh, 
my housing experience took a very uh, unexpected turn in the summer of 2018. And here on the American Indian Cultural Corridor on Franklin Avenue, we had a very, very large homeless encampment that grew up right here on the Cultural Corridor, just almost out of nowhere. Uh, I think ultimately it was over 200 tents, uh, 300 residents, and a majority of them were our native relatives. And as this grew right in the middle of the community here, the native community, the public sector, those who you'd think would respond, the city, the county, things like that, uh, were kind of slow to respond. They don't, we weren't really uh, sort of tooled to respond to something like this. And so those of us in the community, mm-hmm. community members, people who run native organizations came together under the umbrella of the Metropolitan Urban Indian Directors and started to sort of deploy our resources to help care for our relatives who needed it and then also act as uh, go-betweens or intermediaries between the camp, the Wall of Forgotten Natives, as it's known here, the encampment, and then the officials and uh, the resource holders uh, who are trying to figure out what to do. And so suddenly... um, the conversation just changed. And the Wall of Forgotten Natives, this homeless encampment is right off Hiawatha or Highway 55. Tens of thousands of cars a day go by uh, right next to our light rail here in South Minneapolis. Tens and tens of thousands of passengers on light rail went by every day. And suddenly what had been invisible, our relatives sleeping outside, was painfully visible painfully and for about five seconds people actually cared what happened to our relatives who were living at the wall and uh, and the whole policy conversation started to evolve the resource conversation started to evolve we learned statistics horrifying statistics like the fact that in our metropolitan area a native person is 17 times more likely to be unsheltered than the broader population 17 times So uh, the Native people or relatives who are taking a stand and occupying that tiny little strip of public right-of-way along a highway really changed things and and still are. There's a reverberating impact. And so now I've been pulled more than I ever thought I would really be into conversations about finding sustainable community-based solutions to our relatives who are sleep, living without shelter. Uh, and now mm-hmm. in my public sector role as a Metropolitan Council member, I chair our Community Development Committee at the Met Council, which is the committee that's concerned with housing funding, uh, housing and housing policy and quite a bit of the um, shelter conversation as well. So I'm uh, at that policy level still. So with all that, uh, you know, housing experience and, and your, um, your interest in that, what are your you know, thoughts on the situation of the housing market at the moment? Like, uh, you know, with the market you know, being skewed against buyers, is, how does that affect the Native community right now? And just I was curious about your thoughts on, on the housing market. Yeah, thanks. It's huge, right? It has a huge impact. And, uh, you know, during the economic downturn of the mid-2000s, housing production just slowed, stopped in a lot of places. And then as the markets come back, the investment has come at the upper end of the housing market because that's where the most money is to be made. And so we're 
So new housing units tend not to be very affordable uh, to people who are uh, lower wealth. And there's not nearly enough investment in the more affordable end. And so it's a spectrum, right? Housing is a spectrum mm-hmm. from your most affordable to your most expensive. And and every part of that spectrum needs to be invested in. And so the the more affordable end is what's being least invested in now. And so that's where a role for the public sector, for example, to bring resources, to bring dollars, to create incentives to build affordable housing, affordable rental housing. There's a lack of investment there by the market right now. And so that means other forces, government, philanthropy, hopefully business community, tribes and others can bring their resources together to help uh, make sure that we're creating some of the more affordable housing so that people can move along the spectrum and and uh, and that's not really happening all that much and so so every um through the met council we have two public sector tools and we're really focusing on some of that most affordable housing and making it easier to build some of the most affordable housing and diversifying that throughout the region, right? So all of the most affordable housing isn't just concentrated in one community, concentrated in one area, but that people have choice. You know, they may not want to live in an urban core. They may want to live in something that feels more suburban or even ex-urban. Great. I appreciate your perspective on that. Um, have there been any mentors along the way that, you know, have taught you certain things that, you know, you know, that you now live your life by? I was just... You know, I have had a lot. I've had the good fortune to have elders in my life that give me tons of good advice. And But it's in housing and specifically in housing, I would really call out uh, a Ho-Chunk man by the name of Mike Gozi. He is the director of the American Indian Community Development Corporation here in Minneapolis, AICDC. Uh, AICDC is a close partner relationship of the Native American Community Development Institute. We co-own this building together and they office in the basement here. But the amazing thing about Mike Gozi, and I've had the opportunity to say this, you know, from the city council, from the Met Council, to anyone that will listen, is that Mike Gozi can put housing units online faster than anyone I've ever seen. And when you're using the, the kind of uh, quilt, uh, patchwork quilt of sort of funding sources that go into creating affordable housing or shelter or supportive housing. You know, there are operation dollars that you need and different entities fund different parts of this. And he just goes in. He is brilliant at um, getting public agencies to do things they don't normally do to get these projects moving forward. He has a project going on. It's a third phase of a project just about a block away right now. And so he's he's my role model. And uh, I would say early in my housing life, when I was just becoming a little landlord and starting to learn a few things, there was a, a, a gentleman that owned two buildings on either side of, of mine. And he, uh, he'd had them since like after World War II. And he was, he was aging, but he was there every day, taking care of his buildings every day. And, uh, and he really was my hero for a while. He showed me that, you know, if you have the, if you have an asset, you need to take care of it, you know? And so he was another influence on me in the housing realm. 
But I have, like I said, I've been fortunate to have lots of good elders around me giving me lots of good advice. Well, we are out of time for today, but hang on to your hats because we'll continue with this conversation next time. More with Robert Lilligren's personal story and his thoughts on leadership. What does leadership mean to you and and how do you see leadership play out in our communities? Pretty much every politician I know, and I know a lot of them, I think would describe themselves as shy. I would describe myself (laughs) as shy as well. And then something happened in their lives that made stepping out of that shy place less important than stepping forward. Native Lights Podcast, where Indigenous voices shine, is a production of Minnesota Native News and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities. Native Lights Podcast is made possible by funding from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and the citizens of Minnesota.